Asian Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. This is ATP Stories. We're all about the stories, the people that make the Asian tech ecosystem so dynamic, so fascinating. Joined today from Beijing, Ludwig Baudin, who describes himself as a French entrepreneur and investor based in China. Ludwig, welcome to the show. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for having me today. Ça va bien? Ça va? My French is a little bit Ça rusty. Ça va très bien. Très bien. But I, I believe you can speak French, Mandarin, Chinese, Spanish, English. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in that order, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, let's stick to the English. I think we'll uh, get by on that. You're, you're based in Beijing. Um, originally from France. You're from is it Saint-Loup in France originally? Yeah, you did your research yeah, right. I did yeah. my research. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not the most, you know, I used to be a neighbor in France. I lived in England for many years, but Saint-Loup, I don't know where that is. So we've got a lot to that's, unpack. That's in, that's in Normandy. All right, okay, yeah. just over Next the wall. Oh, well, there you go. I lived in Portsmouth, yeah. which is just your, your neighbor almost, over La, La Manche, so, right? Exactly, La Manche, yeah. Very good. But now we're here in different part of the world. I'm in Tokyo, you're in Beijing. We're going to talk about your journey, how you got to Beijing and what's it like being a, an entrepreneur and investor in Beijing and, and the many hats you wear. So the many projects you're involved in, some fascinating tech enterprises that you're involved in as well as funds. And so projects like, for example, French Tech in Beijing. French Tech's a fantastic organization. So you're the co-founder of French Tech, La French Tech, sorry, in Beijing. So we've got all of that to talk about. Let's start at the top. You, How long have you been in Beijing now? I've been, that's my 14th year, actually. Right, okay. So since, two, since 2004, I've been in Beijing. Well, I've been in China, should I say. Right, right. So you moved to China in 2004, long before China became a thing, right? I mean, that was quite sort of early days. It must be... I know, let's forget about the skyline and how Beijing looks, but in terms of the people there, were there many French people or foreigners in Beijing when you moved in 2004? Not much, but there is still not that many uh, today. I mean, uh, the China is attractive, but uh, it's not that many French actually uh, living uh, living in Beijing or, or Shanghai. So it's a few thousand, basically. Right, okay. But you probably all know each other as well, right? So... More, okay. more or less. <laughs> well, that's a good thing as well. So you live in, you've been in 14 years, you're married, your, your wife's Chinese, you have two daughters, right? Correct. So you're pretty much that. Yeah, that's correct. Right. You, you are in China for the long term. So you've been in China for 14 years now. I'm fascinated mm -hmm. by that. You've got a, an amazing story of how you got to China. I, I want to talk about a little bit about that in a minute. You know, because it's not a direct route. It's not like you graduated from France and headed to China, which probably a lot of people do now. You went very much an indirect route, but we'll share with that the listeners in a minute. But I think maybe we can share what you do. What's your day job, so to speak, in China? What keeps you busy? What are the projects that you are focusing now on in China? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm wearing, uh, as you as you mentioned, like quite a quite a few hats. Um, in addition to be a, a father of uh, two beautiful daughters in, in Beijing, uh, I, uh, I actually start up companies in uh, in China. Uh, the uh, the last uh, the last one that I start actually is in uh, video games, a company called Simeon. 
Um, I'm also an investor uh, privately in, uh, in companies, um, and I'm also working on a new uh, on a new fund right now uh, that we can talk a little bit more after. I'm also, as you mentioned, co-founder of the French Tech, which basically uh, um, bridge the uh, French tech community and the Chinese tech community. Um, we we have like monthly uh, monthly events, uh, big events. Uh, uh, in China and in France, uh, bringing uh, bringing the two communities together. Mm. Um, I'm also uh, helping the uh, the French China Foundation, uh, which uh, is also basically bridging uh, bridging France and China in uh, education and arts and, uh, and so on. Mm. And um, and uh, yeah, last but not least, I'm working on a new uh, uh, cross border uh, investment fund in tech. Uh, which targets uh, uh, AI company that are already uh, in growth uh, growth stage, uh, so tech company that actually use AI, AI uh, should I should I say, mm. in mobility, health, and educations and, and so on. Those are Chinese companies, foreign investors. What's the setup? Um, so the, uh, the 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 portfolio company, the targets are actually Chinese company and a European company with a strong focus on uh, on France, uh, tech companies. Uh, typically already in uh, in growth uh, stage, so uh, B round, C round, D round, etc. Uh, as for the LP, so the fund is in construction; it's not officially uh, uh, launched. Uh, it's, it's still uh, we're still working on it, uh, but we already have like uh, three big LP uh, from China, who are institu- institutional investors. Uh, that's about two hundred fifty million dollars. Uh, the overall fund is uh, is one billion uh, in size. Right, and it's AI focused. Or- yeah, application application of AI. Right. So, uh, application of AI for verticals like um, mobility, uh, healthcare, education, mm. environment, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to speak for people outside of China, outside of Asia, who who don't know a lot about China. I mean, people probably know China for being the world's factory you know and having all that kind of technology and maybe they know there's a lot of robotics going on there but if you just look at the data in terms of like the patents filed for ai i think if you look at somewhere like shenzhen for example there's like five times as many patents filed for ai applications in shenzhen than there are in san francisco by comparison so i don't think people realize that china is really, you know, it's under the radar for a lot of the outside world, but there's a lot of AI innovation going on. And it's not just copying the West anymore. There's a lot of really innovative stuff going on, isn't there? That Which I don't think Silicon Valley especially is aware of, that, you know, that there's this degree of innovation and unique creation going on in China. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think China have passed uh, the, the copycat phase like long, at least like three, I would say three years ago or so, two or three years ago. Uh, in the last 14 years, I would say the last two or three years as a as an entrepreneur and as investor, China is probably the most, uh, it's the most exciting uh, stage basically uh, uh, today. Uh, you, you were mentioning um, the, um, the publication, the, uh, the number of AI publication by Chinese author. Mm-hmm. Actually doubled uh, in the last uh, in the last five years, Phenomenal. so that's very very fast growth. Yeah, is that like a top down approach? Is that sort of the government says right, we're going to do AI like sort of Singapore, or was it very much a grassroots thing? 
I think it's a mix, uh, it's a mix of both. But the uh, the uh, the government uh, supporting AI and making AI like a top priority, um, for sure, uh, facilitates uh, funding and innovation, and also drives big company uh, like uh, Baidu and Alibaba and Tencent and so on to uh, to really focus on it. So China officially announced that they want to be uh, uh, number one uh, AI innovation hub by 2030. Uh, that was announced recently in, uh, in October by the, uh, 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 the president, uh, Xi Jinping. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think being outside of Asia, people realize, and in a way, they've got their heads in the sand. Obviously, there's a lot of people coming from the West, if I can use that term, into Asia, and because they understand there's an opportunity, but there's still a lot of people who are in denial. It's understandable, isn't it? I mean, you've lived in Palo Alto, but if you live in a, the Silicon Valley area, the world is there for you, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you if you go to an accelerator in Silicon Valley, you know, it, it, it's everything within a 10-mile radius. You don't have to think about China, but it's changing, isn't it? We'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute, but I want to just jump back a little bit and talk about Seamune. So mm -hmm. you were, let me understand this, right? You were... uh there's a couple of really interesting parts to your story with Seamune. The first part is that you started this company in, in 2007, correct, with your co-founder, and you had no prior experience in gaming. You started in yeah, gaming. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I want to learn yeah. a bit about that. And, and secondly as well, by 2012, you were the largest first-person shooter, or you, one of your games, was it Uber Strike, was the largest first-person shooter inside Facebook. Correct. So, yeah, yeah. how did you get into that? You weren't a games guy. How did you get into gaming in two thousand and seven? Um, through my partner, actually. So I started a company before Simune called uh, in Macau, called uh, Macau dot com, uh, which was an online travel company that I sold uh, a few years ago. Um, the my co-founder on Simune was actually my CTO on Macau dot com, and he was really passionate about uh, making games. And new engine that was popping up, uh, one of them uh, being called Unity 3D, uh, which became a multi-billion dollars company. But at that time, it was li really literally like just a few people uh, uh, in, uh, in in uh, in Europe uh, working on that. So it was uh, so Sean uh, was really passionate uh, about making games. He helped me uh, as CTO on Macau.com, and while in Macau, we basically brainstormed about uh, creating a company together, and that's uh, how we ultimately uh, uh, started Simune and entered the video game business. Was that back in 2007 the right time to launch a games business in China? Was a lot. You know, a lot of things coming together at that point. I don't know what the games industry was like in China back in 2007. One of the funny thing is uh, we we were in China, but actually we were developing in China, but mostly focusing on the uh, on the West. Right. So Sean is Australian. I'm, uh, I'm French. We actually uh, start in uh, in uh, the uh, in Beijing the the development, uh, but most of our users uh, were actually in uh, in USA and in, in Europe. Hmm. Okay. But China at that time was, from video game point of view, was very interesting because you could actually see uh, what the future of video games could be, um, especially from a monetization point of view. Mm. Uh, it was using uh, what we call free-to-play, so like freemium uh, model, which was basically the model like um, uh, in China and Korea, but was pretty much uh, at the very early stage in, uh, in USA and Europe. 
So what became the, the norm and the standard in Europe and USA uh, today was at that time really like uh, almost inexistent in, uh, in the West, while it was the norm already in, uh, in Asia. Right. You, I mean, you started off focusing on the US, but developing in China, is that still how it is today? How has that progressed with Simun? Because China obviously is a very competitive market. But as you say, there's a lot happening at the the cutting edge of technology, isn't there? So were you tempted then to sort of try and build that out in China as well? Well, the market like completely changed uh, in uh, you know in the last ten years or so of uh, of the uh, of of Simeon. Like uh, when we start, uh, basically mobile didn't exist. Uh, it, it was uh, PC and console. Console was inexistent in uh, in China, so only PC was was kind of a global uh, a global platform, mm-hmm. uh, and global being being uh, PC's team or PC Facebook at that time was barely existing in uh, in USA. In, uh, in China, China was mostly uh, uh, dominated by uh, big players like Tencent or, or NetEase. Mm-hmm. At that time, uh, American companies were dominant in, uh, in America and Europe. Uh, some European companies were big, and China was only playing within China uh, boundaries. Uh, today, China, a uh, company like Tencent, um, pretty much own the largest company uh, in the West. So the number one game on PC is uh, the game called uh, League of Legends, mm. uh, developed in Los Angeles by a company called Riot. Uh, that's 100% uh, owned by Tencent right now, which is the largest uh, tech company in China. Uh, the largest uh, mobile company by, uh, by revenue is actually from Finland. Uh, called Supercell, and it's also uh, fully owned by Tencent today. Mm. Not a lot of people know that as well. I mean, you know, that's fascinating, isn't it? It's that it's sort of happening. I mean, we're we're sort of starting now to get used to seeing people like Jack Ma on the TV screen outside of Asia, right? I mean, he was at Davos the other day talking yeah. about, you know, uh, that was the sort of the first time we've actually seen China, the face of China, if you like. I mean, obviously, you know, people may recognize the politicians, but outside of that, you know, the business people, everybody knows mm. Mark Zuckerberg, everybody's seen Richard Branson, but nobody knows these Chinese entrepreneurs, right? And Jack Ma, maybe people recognize his face because he's got kind of an odd looking face, right? And he's a really nice, <laughs> he speaks English as well. He was an English teacher, right? I think, I believe. Yep. And then um, the guy from Tencent, what is it, Pony Ma? I think his name is right. Pony Ma, yeah. I mean, I would mm-hmm. I would recognize him if I saw him walk down the street, and I don't think many Westerners would as well. So, what you're talking about with the gaming industry is maybe you know it's happening behind the scenes, isn't it? That a lot of Chinese companies are now coming out of China because you know they have a lot of expertise and capital, which can really add value to these sort of Western markets. But you know. People don't realize it's happening, and only now they're just starting to see sort of Chinese entrepreneurs outside of China. Exactly, yeah. and I think what happened in uh, in gaming is most likely what's going to happen also on the application of AI. Um, AI is much more so artificial intelligence is much more advanced in China than it is in in Europe, and um, I would say it's uh, it's fifty fifty with uh, with USA. Um, a lot of the innovation that's happening currently in China, I think, has a lot of potential for, for the rest of the world. And uh, 
not only from product point of view, but from capital point of view. Uh, China, I would say, is is uh, has almost unlimited cash right now to uh, to uh, to make AI company uh, uh, global leaders. Is that you know? Does it easily translate to other countries like taking innovation, AI innovation, out of China into Europe or America? The reason I ask Ludovic is if we sort of go back to history in the 90s or the 80s with Japan as an example, which was you know very much a leading country, leading market in terms of technology, consumer electronics. It did very well on the hardware side because hardware just comes out of a box, doesn't it? You just lift a, in the old days, a video recorder, right, out of the box and you plug it in and that was mm-hmm. fine, right? But, you know, when it became about software, then Japan fell apart because software required language and it required people to sell this stuff, right? Which is very different as a model. How is it with Chinese companies and AI? Are they geared towards taking software out? You know, do they, on the basic level, do they they speak enough English to be able to communicate the benefits of AI to these markets? What's it like? Well, it's, it's changing very fast. Like the uh, the entrepreneur that you've seen uh, that are public today from China, you you mentioned like uh, the founder of uh, of Alibaba, like uh, Jack Ma, or the founder of Tencent, Ponima, and so on. Like um, this generation are you know late forties, uh, uh, early or mid fifties. Um, some of them spoke English, uh, but not all of them. Uh, they were not really focusing on uh, on international. They were very much focused on uh, on China and trying to be the you know the Google of China uh, with Baidu or, or the uh, Amazon of uh, of China with uh, with Alibaba. Mm. Uh, the new generation, which is uh, actually fairly young, which is let's say between twenty five and and forty five uh, currently, uh, are actually a lot more international. Uh, they've been exposed to uh, to the West um, since they are born, basically. Yeah, no, that's not okay. And so they are actually a lot more a lot more ambitious um, from uh, the the Chinese company mm. have uh, enough cash not only to become big in China but also to uh, to expand internationally. Mm. Um, saying that, I think what you mentioned about Japan before and, and China today. Uh, it's, it's, it's very true, like from cultural point of view, uh, people point of view, there is not much bridge between China and the rest of the world right now. Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about that. And let's talk about how, how you got to China, because that's a fascinating story. And I want to go way back, Ludovic. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you started your first business when you were 20. Is that correct? I'm just having a look at my notes here, because that's pretty early for a... a entrepreneur what's the story there i was 19 actually i was on my late 19th but i was not even 20 yet. so yeah i started my first company while i was still actually in, uh, in business school um and that was uh, a company doing uh, similar to yep uh, doing basically like uh, uh classified for for restaurants so we had about 1000 restaurants in uh, in france and that was only uh, focusing on france um, I sold the company uh, early 2000, uh, just before the, the bubble kind of cra- explode. And I went to uh, to Canada. I had a bit of a rest. I actually did uh, my, uh, my master in a degree in Waterloo, which is kind of the uh, high-tech area of Toronto. Blackberry. Uh, where Blackberry, Black- exactly. I was Blackberry for Research in Motion. I was actually a student from my university. 
Um, from Canada, uh, I hesitated between uh, California and uh, and Latin America. Uh, I didn't really want to go back to uh, to Europe. I wanted to kind of explore the world, uh, being early twenties, and uh, and I decided well, California is uh, is cool, but uh, Latin America is is uh, I don't know more uh, more exciting somehow. Mm. Uh, not a lot of people uh, were, were there. Yeah. So uh, I, um, I actually ended up working uh, as an expat uh, for uh, a company at the time called France Telecom, which is now Orange, uh, where we bought the, uh, the public operator uh, in El Salvador. So I was actually living in El Salvador. Mm. Uh, we launched um, internet uh, provider and mobile operator over there. And then I start working uh, all over uh, North Latin America, so from Mexico to uh, to uh, to Ecuador, and Honduras as well, I believe, right? Yeah, I work in Honduras on a, on a big project with the United Nations, uh, UNDP. Mm. Uh, we had two hundred forty million dollars uh, uh, budget to uh, modernize the, uh, the the telco industry in uh, in Honduras. Mm. Uh, Work a lot in in Mexico uh, with Carlos Slim Group, which was actually uh, France Telecom uh, main partner, and France Telecom was actually the main telco partner for uh, who became the the richest guy in uh, in Latin America and one of the top five uh, richest guy in the world. Um, so basically, all the transfer of know how was uh, was France, from France Telecom. He actually bought our our companies in El Salvador. Um, I work in, uh, in Colombia and uh, most of uh, Central America, and ultimately uh, quite a bit in, uh, in Ecuador, where we try to uh, to take uh, to take over the uh, the public uh, uh, public company as well as launch a, a mobile company uh, over there. So those must have been pretty exciting times. You were dealing with frontier markets. What was that like then? Was it? Is it you know really exciting? Did you know was it a little bit scary? I wonder what it was like working in those markets. Obviously, you had the 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 security of the backing of France Telecom behind you. Or yeah. you weren't going there as an as a, an individual entrepreneur on your own. You had that backing. You had you know that safety net. But still, these are frontier markets where change happens fast. There's all, all this kind of cultural challenges and so on. What was it like back then? Would you do? You, would you ever go back there? Do Do you miss the kind of the hustle and the the vibe of those like really early early markets? Um, yeah, actually, uh, I go back to Latin America. Um, let's say once once a year or so, uh, but mostly to uh, to visit my friends and and so on that I've made over there. And it was very exciting actually to work for to work for France Telecom uh, in a developing country. I mean, it's at that time France Telecom was uh, you know one of the largest uh, telco operator in the world uh, with the back uh, backing from uh, from the government, uh, expanding in Europe, in Africa, and so on. And Latin America was kind of uh, the the other region where we were growing. Um, it was extremely exciting, actually. I mean, what was even more exciting was actually the the impact that we had on uh, on the local population. Mm. For example, when we bought uh, the uh, the the operator in El Salvador, uh, it was extremely poor. It, it could take like 
you know six months nine months to actually just have a landline installed to to be able to uh, wow. to pass a phone um when we actually sold the company uh, you could have a, a landline installed anywhere in the country in less than 24 hours from from the moment you actually make the make the request mm. so uh, from we launched the first mobile operator and uh, El Salvador became one of the most uh, uh, connected uh, population. We launched uh, uh, full fiber optic. Uh, it became the most modern infrastructure in Central America and uh, and actually became uh, one of the uh, center for uh, Carlos Slim operation, uh, America Mobile in uh, in North Latin America. So yeah, big 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 impact on the on the country and uh, on the population. That sounds like a great gig. That sounds like a great posting to be out there and have that. that that's what people dream of, isn't it? You can go to these frontier markets. You can make a big difference. You can see change. You you doing something important. Why did you then decide? There's, there's a bit missing in the story, which I want to understand. Is that why did you decide then to move from South America to China? What what happened in between? How, how long of a transition period was that, and how did that happen? So I was uh, I was expat in El Salvador, and uh, I basically uh, kind of took over North Latin America as it was, as you said, like pretty much like a virgin territory for uh, for France Telecom. So from from, from Mexico to uh, to uh, to Ecuador, um, I found opportunities, and we uh, we 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 basically uh, made made deals and so on, and it was very exciting. Um, and I was very independent, which means I could almost do whatever, whatever I wanted at that time. Which for a young guy, I was still early twenties. Like that's quite, I mean, yeah, almost impossible to imagine yeah. that could happen to you. Um, but but it did, and that was uh, that was that was really cool. Um, but at the same time, I could see uh, Latin America was uh, fun and exciting, but not necessarily like uh, the place where I wanted to do a business uh, all my life. Um, so I actually I still had at that time interest for for California and uh, and China. So China was a little bit more personal. Like uh, my best friend from uh, uh, from elementary school was already living in China uh, when I left uh, France to Canada. He actually left uh, France to China, and every year I was you know going back uh, to to France for Christmas to to visit the family and the friends, and we were telling our stories about you know how what's happening right now in in Latin America or Canada and what's happening in China. And I knew that I, I wanted to kind of experience uh, China. Mm. Uh, at the same time, being in tech, California was still very exciting and appealing. Uh, but I decided that uh, more change uh, was uh, more interesting to experience and more changes were clearly happening in in China. I mean, we're talking pre-Olympics and so on, so 2004. Right. What was it actually that sold you on China? Because you, you had choice, didn't you? You could have moved. You could have moved to California, the Valley. You could have moved to oh. Waterloo, uh, you know, Rim, Blackberry, which back in 2004 was still very, very strong. You could have moved back to Europe. Oh. You could have stayed in Central America or South America. You, you had the world in front of you. What was it about China that sold it to you? Was there anything specifically that you thought, yep, yeah, this is the reason why I need to go? Well, from pers personally, I was very interested in the culture. Uh, I was doing martial arts uh, or Chinese martial arts uh, already, like wushu. I was uh, was interested in the. I was pretty much like reading whatever 
whatever uh, books about China, I was I was into it. Um, but I've never been there at the time. I was mm. literally like in uh, France, Europe, uh, Canada, USA, and Latin America, but not no experience yet, uh, not even once in uh, in Asia. So I, I thought the the most unknown uh, was actually the most uh, interesting, uh, and and China was clearly the most unknown uh, for most people uh, on Earth at that time, uh, including the tech industry. So I went to I went to China in 2004. I knew a few people who, uh, who were living there, so I I, uh, I did a bit of a tour of uh, of China and uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan and so on, and ultimately. I decided that uh, Beijing was uh, was the place to uh, to be for me. Uh, that's an interesting choice, Beijing, because that was what two, four years before the Olympics as well. So, yeah. I guess it looked very different as well four years later. But why did you decide on Beijing? Because I imagine it was a lot more, a lot less comfortable for somebody who <laughs> you know from France or you know the US or Canada you know like Hong Kong Taiwan you mentioned a lot more sort of open maybe more used to people like you sort of just turning up and mm -hmm. settling there why, why did you choose Beijing was it you're seeking the challenge again yeah exactly I think I had two uh, two wild moments in my uh, in my trip in uh, in Beijing um, one of them was um, a friend of mine uh, uh, who is in the 60s right now, uh, was a professor at uh, Tsinghua University, uh, American uh, American, uh, American guy, actually, uh, named Bob Obrey. And um, he was a professor at Tsinghua. So when I went to Beijing, I, I went on Tsinghua campus, and I was I was blown away, basically, by, uh, by the campus campus. Uh, I mean, I, I lived in Canada, which, you know, Waterloo has pretty huge campus compared to uh, whatever you can see in Europe. But, uh, but China is, is, was another dimension. And the, uh, the, the innovation happening, uh, the energy uh, on the campus, um, what, what the, one of the professor Bob was, uh, was explaining to me, uh, I, I thought, okay, that's, there is something happening uh, here. Um, I think the other, the other moment actually is... Uh, I was at the Antilanmen, uh, and I was just seeing this country moving so fast, and at the same time, uh, everything was just uh, very peaceful. Mm. So I, I felt that uh, this this energy was quite quite unique, actually, uh, and I, I wanted to be part of it, basically. What were you describing when you talked about the university and that energy? What kind of things were you experiencing, which made you feel that this was the right place and this this was going somewhere were there particular things you you saw or felt or witnessed or whatever i mean i'm really curious you know we want to experience that as well what was it about that was it Tsinghua university that and the the energy there that made you feel that this is the right decision I mean, from macro point of view, like uh, it was clear that China uh, not only was changing but was on its way to uh, to become a, to become a leader, and uh, understanding what uh, you know the, the people behind it and the uh, the uh, the government behind it and the uh, the companies behind it, like uh, not many foreigners uh, were exposed to that, so I, I really wanted to uh, to to understand. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, it was also the very beginning of uh, Zhongguansun at the time, which is like the uh, kind of the, the tech center of, uh, of Beijing, uh, right next to Tsinghua. And you could see company just like 
popping up and uh, and becoming like you know the the companies that today are are worth tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars, mm. like like Baidu, for example. Right. Was that comparison comparable to anything you've experienced in Silicon Valley in, in Palo Alto? You spent a bit of time out there. Was it different in any way? Because people sort of always say, you know, that the the Silicon Valley ecosystem, you know, is, is something special. And nothing can really yeah. copy it. But how how is it there? I mean, may, maybe people don't realize what was going on in Beijing and just how much was happening at the grassroots level. Is there any sort of comparison between the two? I, I think Silicon Valley is is very unique, and there is no point to try to kind of be the other Silicon Valley, or it's it's just it's just different. But uh, if you look at the size of the uh, talent pool, the size of the university, the quality of the university. Uh, mathematically, you knew that China will actually uh, create companies uh, that will become like global leaders. Like, uh, uh, if you look at the population, well, the the, the market size is obviously uh, quite a few times larger than uh, than USA, and it, it was obviously uh, you know a lot poor, a lot more poor at that time than it is right now. Um, but it was pretty obvious that uh, that China was going to become a to become a leader. Um, I think the the fact that the whole country uh, was moving and in, is moving toward one direction that uh, a, a strong party is uh, is giving uh, you know is giving the vision. I think that's also uh, very very unique and makes China also uh, very uh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at AI, for example, like uh, China has like a very clear plan by 2030 uh, to be leader and government uh, give the direction but then companies like the big companies and the startup and the investors are actually uh, jumping in into uh, into it and making it happen mm. which is which is quite quite remarkable on the other side if you look at usa uh, during uh, obama administration like uh, uh, ai was um, ai or solar panel and uh, uh, environment and so on was like a big uh, you know also like a big direction of the government mm. but government change every few years new president new direction and well it's much more complicated to uh, to uh, to to execute exactly. uh, china has the benefit of having long term vision and and somehow long term stability uh, within uh, within the government we see that across asia don't we that i think that's what entrepreneurs or business people outside of asia struggle to understand a little bit is that they believe in the purely the value of the market and when they think of you know these these sort of top down structured approach to building ecosystems you know i think people are often think that oh, that's the wrong way to do it but you look at what you're talking about like in beijing and what's happening in other tier one cities in China, and then also what's happening in Singapore as an example, and to some extent places like Bangkok where they're building, you know, they're trying to copy what's happening elsewhere. But, you know, Singapore definitely, it works, doesn't it? You know, that if you have this stability in government where they say, okay, right, we've got this, we're not talking about a four or five year plan until the next election. We're talking 15, 20 years out, and we're going to build this, and we're going to get everybody on board. There's a real benefit to that as well. I think it's it's sort of the untold truth, isn't it, about building 
technology ecosystem, sometimes top down really works. You know, we, we look at Silicon Valley and think, well, you know, that's just the free market. Look how wonderful it is. But sometimes the other approach works as well, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, it's truly amazing, actually, like to, uh, it's not like the government is forcing on companies to execute on this or to execute on that. It's just like this natural like cooperation toward one goal. Um, I mean, I think uh, whoever lived uh, in Beijing before the Olympic, you could literally feel, you know, 1.3 or 1.4 billion people walking toward one goal, which was, you know, to be ready to be shown to the rest of the world. Uh, and that's that's that was quite a unique uh, unique time actually to uh, to live in in China. Um, I think today it's uh, it's not the Olympic, but I think. Uh, uh, what's happening on environment, for example, uh, you know, China obviously had a lot of challenge and still have challenge, but the uh, the rapidity of uh, execution to actually uh, uh, make the, for example, the, uh, uh, the reduce the air pollution in in Beijing. I mean, what happened in 2017 was completely blown. Was 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 amazing, basically. Wow. Early 2017. Well, early 2017, I was uh, really fed up with uh, with the uh, the air pollution. Uh, I was uh, father of a, a second child, so uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, always concerned about uh, mm. you know the risk of uh, of the pollution on health and so on. And I was actually quite vocal uh, about it. Um, so I went on TV um, in uh, in uh, with a lot of international TVs like CNN and uh, and. Uh, uh, France 2, which is like the, the national channel in uh, in uh, in France, and newspaper and so on. So I was basically almost every week I was doing interviews and I had cameras come into my house to do uh, mm. to do uh, to do about it. And I was explaining, you know, if government doesn't well, if if the pollution uh, is is uh, is too high, we need to protect ourselves at least in our house, basically. And uh, so we. We basically renovated almost our entire house just to make sure that the air quality with the air filtering system uh, will would be perfect, basically. Mm. Uh, but within within a year, the air pollution in China went from bad or very bad to almost no problem anymore. How did they do that? Well, they did a few things, which you know probably only can happen in China. Um, for example, when I arrived in, in Beijing 14 years ago, most of the uh, uh, the heating system uh, was done through uh, through coal. So mm. you had three uh, three coal central in uh, in Beijing that was producing most of the heating uh, for for Beijing. Uh, 2017, they actually closed down the last one. Uh, second thing, the uh, the factories. So during the 2008 Olympics. Uh, they closed down the the factories for the Olympics uh, to basically reduce the uh, the air pollution, and everybody knew that the impact was pretty big. So, 2017, uh, they actually decided to pretty much close down. Uh, I would say most of the factories in Beijing and around Beijing. Uh, that's and that's also had like a third impact. That means a lot of the population that was living in Beijing and working in these factories, migrant workers and so on, 
well moved back to uh, to their to their hometown or, or to to the place where new factories, modern factory, non-polluting factory, uh, were were opened. Um, these three three things combined together. I mean, we're talking uh, uh, basically redesigning the entire like uh, heating system in Beijing. Uh, the first, uh, the uh, the closing of factories, which you know impacts uh, hundreds of thousands, if not a million of people, and moving people uh, out, which also involve uh, destruction of some of the buildings that were, you know, not not very high standard in in Beijing. Mm, it's phenomenal, though, the execution to get that right and to carry that out. Within literally a year. In a year, yeah, exactly. I was going to add. I mean, that's just amazing. How did the Chinese feel about you being vocal about that? Because let's sort of flip that on its head. If you were a Chinese guy in France talking about complaining or talking about, you know, the air quality in Paris, would it have been a different reaction? I mean, how are Chinese people in general about you as a foreigner there? and offering your opinion about how things should be done? Well, I'm already half Chinese in the sense that I'm married with, with my, my wife is right. Chinese and so on. So when we, when we go on TV and so on, it's not only a, a foreign face, it's also like a, a Chinese mom and Chinese kids and, and so on. So that makes uh, everything uh, easier. Um, but uh, overall, like Chinese actually are very open to... Uh, to to that i mean the the population is very open to that um to early 2017 or late 2016 um it was quite common to uh, on social media uh, to actually uh, hear people talking about the the pollution and the and the problem that uh, mm. we we had to face basically on health and kids and so on right okay that's fast so i think the the, the time was was the, the right time basically mm. yeah your daughters now, when they grow up, I'm curious to know what kind of a China waits for them. I mean, my, my son now is nearly 12 years old. He's half Japanese, half English. And I'm very aware that the future for him is going to be very different when he enters the world of work. That, you know, it's going to be those people who can cross borders, you know, who don't really see sort of differences between especially i know japan and china is a great example there's a lot of history a lot of negative history there as well between these two countries but you know if he was to grow up in a world where he had the ability to connect those worlds positively that there's so much opportunity there not just between japan and china between china and the us and wherever right how is how do you think it's going to be for your daughters growing up i mean your oldest daughter how old is she now um, she's seven, and my youngest is uh, now Right. So the seven-year-old in, let's say, 10, 12 years' time, so that would be, what, 2030. So China will be the biggest economy in the world. Asia will be the biggest trading block in the world, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen all the stats. But what actually do you think it will be like? Because you've been in Beijing for 14 years. If you sort of look forward another 14 years, that's going to be tough, isn't it? Do you know what it would be like for her? when she's sort of going into the world of work, can you kind of see how that change is going to happen? Is there anything that you can see that from your experience that is likely to happen in China? Well, d- difficult to, uh, difficult to forecast, but uh, her, her education is actually quite a, a global education. Like she, uh, well, she's seven, but she speaks three languages, uh, languages already. Uh, you know, in, uh, Chinese, uh, French and English in, in that order. Um, uh, 
she traveled. Uh, she spent at least a month uh, in Europe uh, every year. She actually fly on her own to Europe right now since she's uh, five years old, which wow. is, you know, at, at my time, we didn't do this kind of stuff with, uh, when I was young. Uh, on her own, so she's very, she has a, a, an escort, right, from the, the airline. Yeah. That's, that's insane, yeah. right? That's a lot of faith, she's, right? She's very, very relaxed about it, actually. Uh, and it's, it's not it's not her only like uh, most of her friends actually uh, uh, do the same because most of her friends are like her they are you know um, Chinese French or or, or Chinese uh, Chinese something else basically. So yeah, I mean having a global education uh, is is I think like a really big uh, big thing uh, uh, for her. We we're also investor uh, in a, in education company. Which is actually uh, a JV uh, between uh, between France and, uh, and Finland. So Finland is actually the uh, number one uh, country, uh, ranked number one uh, worldwide for early child education. Mm. Uh, China, on the other side, is actually the largest uh, uh, market for uh, early child education. Seventy percent of early child education in China are actually uh, private schools. Uh, the so what we're doing is we actually bring in the Finnish curriculum uh, in uh, in English and Chinese, and we bring that to China opening schools uh, all over China. So we actually have two schools uh, opening in uh, in September, mm. um, and we not only take in the Finnish curriculum, uh, but we also uh, bring in a lot of innovation, um, actually using uh, AI for example which um, we're trying to basically think what the future of education can be uh, in China, but what the future of education in an area of uh, artificial intelligence uh, can be uh, for, for, the, for the kids, basically, for early child education. So three, three to seven uh, is, is our core focus. How, how is that? How does it look? What is, what is different about that school beyond the curriculum? And you use the innovation and technology because I'm fascinated because, you know, because you have a blank slate to be able to build an, a school or an education program based on what's really needed for today and the future rather than what was needed in the industrial era, right? Yeah, exactly. You can make it happen. I'm really curious to know what that actually looks like. So the, uh, the specificity of the Finnish curriculum, it's like uh, it's very oriented toward like uh, creativity and cooperation. The way uh, the, the teacher teach, uh, it's very uh, personalized uh, program for, for the kids rather than, uh, you know, having the same program for, for everyone. Uh, it's pretty much the opposite of uh, education in China that is basically the same since 1948, which is called the, the injection, uh, injection method. You, you try to inject as much knowledge to the kid as possible and see whatever is left. Um, so f- Finnish curriculum, similar to like uh, Montessori, is very uh, personalized. Um, what's beautiful about China is um, the technology. Basically, everybody is in favor of technology. In USA or Europe, people are sometimes a little bit scared about technology. They think technology may be like uh, disrupt uh, their their job, uh, could be threatening, etc. Uh, on the on the opposite, China is very welcoming to uh, to new technology. Uh, people are okay with uh, disruption. People embrace uh, disruption. Um, so, for example, uh, if you're talking about uh, in 
in artificial, artificial intelligence, like uh, facial recognition. Uh, we are going to have like cameras like uh, all over the, uh, the the schools, and with facial recognition, we're going to be able to identify uh, what the kids are doing. Uh, for example, if the kids uh, spend more time in the reading uh, area. Maybe the teacher doesn't need to push him too much to read books because naturally the kid uh, does it. But if a kid, for example, is not very social, uh, the uh, the machine, uh, the algorithm can see that the kid always spend time with you know his two uh, his two or three uh, close friends. Uh, the teachers can actually have this data uh, through uh, through the AI and actually uh, decide to, for example, change the kids. Uh, more often from one table to another or get the kids to play with other kids that he's not used to, to actually develop also his, uh, uh, his ability to, uh, to make friends. So what you're describing, the actual impact of that is very positive. You know, for example, let's say you identified a kid who isn't social, maybe a bit isolated. Usually in a normal school, they'd be hiding in the corner somewhere. Teacher wouldn't notice them. You know, okay. it, if asked, everything's okay, you know, it's fine, don't worry about me, et cetera, et cetera. But you use AI to to help identify a pattern, make that pattern aware to the, the teacher. But I, I can't imagine, you know, if you did that in Europe or USA, anybody would say, yeah, let's do this. Because that, wow, I mean, if you can get that to work in China, that would be amazing. But could you imagine that would be accepted in anywhere in the West? I don't know. I think the West naturally will have a lot more resistance. Uh, people will talk about like uh, you know privacy and exactly. tracking, and should should we let the kid uh, do whatever and just you know trust the teacher, etc. If you actually talk to teacher, uh, is he will I mean they they will basically explain to you that uh, they have a big responsibility in the education of kid, where at that age a lot of the personality is actually forming. Um, but they don't have KPI. They, they don't have uh, enough data uh, to actually uh, decide what they should do with this kid versus that kid versus that kid. They have too many kids basically to uh, to manage at the same time. Mm. So having more data about the kid, uh, making this data also transparent not only to to the teacher but also to the parents uh, is also critical. Um, anybody who has kids. Uh, uh, who had kids under under that age, under under seven? When the parents usually ask, "Hey, what did you do at school?" Or nothing, or exactly. I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, and you can think your kid is very social because is you see him with other kids that he know in the neighborhood and so on. But you might not be aware that actually at school he's actually not that social. Exactly. Uh, or you, he, d- he doesn't have a benchmark. The kid doesn't know what's normal and what's not. It's just this is how it is for him, right? So if he's not socializing, mm-hmm. that's normal, right? Exactly. It's amazing. I mean, what, that area you're in, it, it, is it possible that in the future that that model could be exported back to, well, especially Asian countries, but also then maybe to, you know, other countries outside of Asia, if that was to work in China? Yeah, that's uh, that's our objective actually. So the uh, the company we're investor is, uh, is so it's a JV, so it's a it's a Chinese company between you know France between uh, Finland and uh, and China. Um, this uh, the Finnish company already have schools all over the world, um, so it's it's a good opportunity uh, to innovate in China and possibly and possibly uh, spread that across the network of school around the world and possibly to more schools. Uh, will, uh, will have a appetite uh, for it. 
Yeah, I mean that that is a very interesting space. I mean, we're starting to see a lot of interesting developments coming out of China now. Just sort of the, the tip of the spear, if you like, that like with retail, the way you are, you know, this sort of new approach to retail where you have all this technology and especially the data and the patterns and people are identifying how they could use this to make a better experience for the consumer and the shopper and so on. And now that there is, there is this situation where, you know, China can now be so ahead of the rest of the world in retail that they can start exporting this technology and know-how back to the rest of the world. Right. So, you know, all those sort of criticisms that were leveled at Asia over the years about education system. I mean, they're still there, obviously, you know, that, the injection method you talked about that, and you know, you look at the, the, the maths Olympics, it's always, you know, Singapore, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong at the top, right. That, you know, the, any media in the West would all say, yeah, but what about the creatives? They don't know how to create. They don't know how to think. They don't know how to form an opinion. You know, these are really important things for entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, that ability to create, that ability to think out of the box, et cetera, et cetera. Are you seeing young people in China now developing those skills or do we still have work to do? Well, what's, uh, what's beautiful about Chinese parents is they actually know that uh, the current education system in China is broken. Actually, the, the country know, uh, the government know it's broken and, and they want to fix it. Um, but the parents, meanwhile, actually are investing quite a bit in the education of, of their kids. So there is what they learn at schools and there is what they do outside of schools. Um, in, in, in France or, or even America, like, uh, people rely a lot on, uh, institutional, uh, training, like from, from schools while in Asia, uh, I mean, Korea, Singapore, uh, uh, China and so on, uh, people are investing what a large part of their income into the uh, child education uh, apart from, from school. Uh, as for preschool, uh, so uh, less than seven years old, um, that's uh, open field in, in China, as I mentioned, 70% private. Um, the, the main reason is the kids uh, up to recently in China were staying with their grandparents and they were not going to school uh, up to the age of seven. Obviously, uh, staying with the grandparents or staying with a nanny uh, in terms of like uh, personality uh, forming, that's, that's, that's not the, uh, the most optimum. Um, so the, the education before seven uh, is, is basically like the time for Chinese parents to, today to, 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 have a diff- to have an impact on the, uh, on the education of the kid. Yeah, very interesting. Ludovic, this has been really fascinating. Thank you for walking us through uh, your experience of China and your journey. It's been inspirational. I I imagine there must be people listening to your story and thinking, how do I do that? I want to get into China. So I'm a 20-year-old, maybe the 19-year-old Ludovic back in San Loop. Or anywhere in the world, you know, I'm listening to this and thinking, yeah, I want to do that. I know China is important or Asia is important. I want to get involved. But like you, when you first came here, I didn't have, you know, maybe I've never been there. Maybe I don't have any experience. I don't have a job offer. What do I do? How do I get into it? Do I have to learn Mandarin first? Should I go to university and study Asian studies? I know it, it's it's a very broad advice that I'm I'm asking you for, but where could 
do you offer some kind of advice for these people? Where could they start? What could they? What could get them going, moving towards China? Well, what, whatever you do uh, back home is is helpful. Like I mean, learning the language is helpful. Like uh, starting to be more exposed to the culture is is helpful. But the reality is like. Uh, whatever you learned before going to China is going to be very little compared to what you're going to learn once you're in China. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the first step is uh, the most difficult is actually to buy the flight ticket and, and come here. Uh, once you're here, it's not necessarily easy every day, but uh, every, everything becomes uh, more clear and, and, just, uh, and just easier as you go. So. And the f- first step, I think, is just to just to come here and uh, and, and experience. I mean, I, I didn't know it. Canada. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know Canada before I went to Canada, and and you know, it takes less than a week to uh, to uh, to get uh, everything arranged, more or less. I didn't know anything before I came to uh, Latin America. I mean, I, I went there for work. I didn't even go once to Latin America before. Same thing for for China, but. Uh, and same thing for California and, and others. I think once you're in the country, everything everything happens somehow naturally. So yeah, don't yeah. don't think don't think don't think too much. Uh, just keep running, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it worked out all right. I think that's great advice, isn't it? That the first step is show up. You know, that buy the ticket and show up. There's a lot of people interested in Asia right now, but how many of them will actually buy a ticket and show up? I think that's the most important commitment, isn't it? That that's what people need to do. It's like don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Don't wait for the perfect timing to get all your, you know, all your, all your information, all your, you know, everything arranged. Just show up. I think that for a lot of entrepreneurs is probably the best move they can take right now. Show up and and keep uh, keep going because um, a lot of people who actually um, show up in uh, in China these days uh, are. Let's say students who uh, do the last year or internship or so on uh, in China after their their their, their bachelor or master, uh, they usually don't last much more than two or three years. Um, so statistically, if you look at people who have been in China for more than five years, uh, I would say probably eighty percent of them are actually married with uh, with locals, mm. and that makes you stick, you know, for for the longer term. Um, I think. Experience in a country like China for two or three years uh, is interesting, but uh, uh, but it's it's not enough. Basically, I think uh, you know, ten years, twenty years is really uh, what it takes. Ludovic, inspirational. Thank you so much today. Really enjoyed talking to you. Really enjoyed learning about your journey as well. Before you go, tell share the listeners. Uh, a link where people can find out more about you and your projects because I know you have many projects on the go so share what you can with us and I'm sure people want to find out more about you sure well I guess LinkedIn is, uh, is probably the uh, the easiest uh, easiest way so you can just go on my LinkedIn uh, Ludovic Bodin uh, B-O-D-I-N all in uh, in one word yeah and just uh, just uh, reach out to me through that awesome Ludovic thank you very much and yeah let us know in the future as well what's new on your table what sort of the new projects you're involved in we'd love to keep updated and learn about the the different projects you're involved in as well as just get an update on china as well because it moves so fast and i think as well you offer a real experience that like those two to three year old two to three year students that stay in china they don't have that sort of perspective you were there in beijing 
four years before the Olympics. So you've seen a lot come and go. So help us unpack and understand it in the future as well. So please come back on and share your journey with us and more insights. We'd love that. Cool. Will be my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me today again. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.